Hello, folks. We're down the line from Cape Cod tonight with political analyst, author, and historian, Dr. James D. Boyce. I'm Michael L. Roberts. This is the American Chronicle. Welcome all to episode 17 of The American Chronicle, an episode in which we examine the legendary journalist Bob Woodward's new book entitled Rage, regarding his candid interviews with the sitting president. We examine Donald Trump's performance at the uh, ABC Town Hall, hosted by George Stephanopoulos for undecided voters, and we look at the history, meaning, and purpose of the Electoral College and its potential impact on the 2020 presidential election. I began then by asking James about the Woodward book. So there really is only one book in town this week and it is this book, uh, Rage, the latest publication by uh, Bob Woodward. Um, this is only the latest book uh, that Woodward has produced upon a series of American presidents dating all the way back to his uh, uh, groundbreaking work uh, with Carl Bernstein uh, in All the President's Men, which of mm. course uh, helped lead to the downfall of President Richard Nixon uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, when you consider the fact that now for some 50 years, Bob Woodward has been chronicling American presidents and gaining th the most remarkable access to and insight to administrations, uh, it really is a, a remarkable track record mm. and a, a unique feat of journalism, frankly, uh, which is unrepeated in American history and one would imagine will be unrepeated moving into the, the future, uh, covering uh, uh, such a, a wide range of American presidents, both Democrat and Republican, and being, frankly, um, unsparing in his treatment of presidents from either party, uh, be they, again, Democrat or Republican. Mm. Uh, what is of note, it must be said, with this publication is that rather than taking a rather uh, critical uh, but subjective view, uh, Bob Woodward has chosen on this occasion to cross the line in the view of many people and to say quite categorically that he believes that, Bob, that uh, Donald Trump clearly is the wrong man for the job at this time. Mm. And that, is, of course, is causing some um, controversy, shall we say, here in the United States. The question beggars belief to an extent, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. After Trump already engaged with Woodward uh, in a previous uh, uh, incarnation of, uh, of writing and otherwise, what would possibly bring Donald Trump to, to, the, uh, to the doorstep and the, uh, the tape machine of Bob Woodward again at this crucial uh, run-up to the election time? Well, it's been suggested uh, in, and stated quite bluntly that uh, at, at some point in your presidency, you will be approached by Bob Woodward uh, and you have an option as president. You can either play ball or not. Uh, and whether you play ball or not, the book will be written. Uh, Woodward will somehow gain access, whether you like it or not, uh, and the book will be published. Uh, so you have two options, play ball, don't play ball. 
Um, earlier in his presidency, as you allude to, uh, Bob Woodward uh, approached Donald Trump and asked for access, and that was denied. The president refused to play ball uh, with Bob Woodward's first book, which was entitled Fear, yeah. uh, that came out to great acclaim uh, several years ago. Uh, this was an approach which had been taken by other presidents. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Clinton uh, decided not to grant an interview uh, for Woodward's first book on the Clinton presidency entitled The Agenda. Um, that didn't work out quite very well because, of course, all that happened was Woodward went around the president and interviewed uh, many of the members of his administration and got access to paperwork, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. clearly, uh, Donald Trump realize that, well, if you don't play ball with, with Woodward, you have no way of controlling the narrative. And if there's one thing we do know about Donald Trump, whether one likes him or not, he is someone who uh, very much prides himself on believing that he can control the narrative if he is engaging with individuals. Mm. Now, whether mm. that is true or not is frankly very debatable. Uh, but what you can clearly see here uh, in the narrative which has emerged from Woodward in terms of the creation of this book is that Donald Trump has gone out of his way to make himself available to Bob Woodward through a series of uh, interviews lasting many, many hours, uh, giving Donald, uh, Donald Trump, giving Woodward a, a private number that he could basically be reached at any time mm -hmm. uh, and engaging in a series of uh, recordings stretching some 10 hours or so which Woodward has recorded and has made access to the media, which make for remarkable listening. Um, it's worth considering, of course, that here we are, Bob Woodward, uh, producing a book on another American president who's been impeached, and there are tapes. Does that sound familiar <laughs> at all? <laughs> this, is, this is eerily present of, uh, of, of course, uh, what happened with Richard Nixon some 50 years ago. Walking, walking straight into your method and madness uh, scenario. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and this, this idea that, you know, I've said it about other politicians in the past. If you give them enough rope, if you give them enough access to air times, they will talk themselves into trouble. Um, I've long believed that this is what will lead to the downfall of AOC out of uh, New York, for example. And here we are now with Donald Trump. And uh, I'm sure many of your, uh, many of our listeners will have heard uh, some of the excerpts, read some of the transcripts. Mm. Uh, Woodward has been, as always, quite frankly, uh, very forthcoming uh, with regard to his own self-promotion for this book. It is the number one bestseller uh, here in the United States. Uh, just uh, two days after its initial publication. Uh, he's even been uh, generous enough, uh, if you can make this out, to produce uh, signed copies of, course. of, his, uh, of his text. How, el how else? <laughs> to get access to, uh, <laughs> to his written work. Uh, he is a fabulous self-promoter. Um, and frankly, you know, his work is always worth reading because uh, he is notoriously... Um, bipartisan in terms of his criticism uh, and uh, an access. Um, this mm. time it will no doubt be Republicans and Trump acolytes who are appalled uh, by his work. Uh, likewise, we've seen in the past uh, his work on uh, Obama uh, and Bill Clinton has been equally uh, caustic, I think. Mm. Um, there is much to make in his work and um, it is doubt, no doubt going to be uh, probably the best-selling political biography uh, of the year, I imagine. Mm. I feel like we've covered uh, many, many books during the 
Trump presidency from fire and fury all the way through to this that uh, uh, that have that sense of a of a best seller the uh, uh, the fire and fury as i recall was a sort of a uh, a starter out of the gate that didn't necessarily live up to its uh, live up to its excitement uh, obviously woodward comes with a far more secure ethos and otherwise let's drill down a little bit into some of the uh, perceived bombshells within the this particular woodward book and then the the sort of uh, republican or or indeed fox news reaction that is capable of brushing them aside as comparatively insignificant and uh, within a matter of hours already yesterday's news, please. There are several bombshells within Bob Woodward's latest book on the Trump presidency. Um, because of the evolving nature of the coronavirus, let's start there. Um, mm. There has been several leaks to this effect already, so forgive me if I'm repeating stuff which is now almost yesterday's news, which, by the way, is the exact critique of this, which people like Fox News are already coming up with. Um, but, of course, uh, one of the main uh, headlines out of this, uh, this text is the fact that uh, Donald Trump is on tape basically admitting that he downplayed uh, the severity of the coronavirus mm. when he was in full possession of the facts to know that that was simply not the case. Um, now, this is significant because, of course, um, you know, the United States uh, has a uh, pretty awful track record in terms of dealing with this. Uh, the question is, why is that? Well, uh, in our first, in our previous series of the American Chronicle, we talked about the great challenges uh, when you have a federal system of government uh, and the the, the difficulty, arguably, that the federal government has in imposing state-by-state uh, -state mandates with regard to, mm. say, for example, mask wearing. Mm. Um, now, you know, <laughs> let's be honest about it. If an American president wants to do something, he'll find a way to do it. Um, but what you've seen come out of, the, um, out of the, the text, out of the transcripts from this, is Donald Trump very categorically admitting that he downplayed the severity of this, knowing full well that uh, this was going to be um, a, a deadly um, scenario. Mm. Um, from a British point of view, this gets even more interesting because uh, what he's trying to do uh, is to compare himself <laughs> with the Chilean, the Chilean calm. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With Winston S. Churchill, uh, you know, the greatest Briton uh, of all time. As uh, not my, my my statement necessarily, although I, who am I to disagree with that? But uh, uh, of course. Uh, a pole of poles um, mm. at the beginning of the 20th century revealed Churchill the, the greatest Britain. Um, Donald Trump has said that what he has done by downplaying the coronavirus was basically exactly what Churchill did with the Nazis and the Blitz, suggesting that uh, Churchill used to go up onto rooftops during the Blitz and give speeches, basically saying, it'll be okay. There's nothing to worry about here, go home. Um, well, of course, that is simply not true. Um, and again, it is just another case of Donald Trump simply being fast and loose with, in this case, historical analogy. Uh, Winston Churchill certainly was renowned for standing on the, uh, the rooftop uh, of Whitehall as, uh, as the East End was bombed. 
uh, in quite a remarkable uh, um, approach, quite frankly, whether it was foolhardy or unbelievably brave uh, is very much up to individuals to make their own mind up. But mm. he certainly didn't then stand on that rooftop and give speeches to uh, a, a, a collected mass below telling them there's nothing to see here. Don't worry about it. Mm. If anything, mm. he was quite blunt in his approach and uh, warning of the dangers to come. Um, and it was his rhetoric, of course, which uh, was so important in stirring up the national spirit, uh, the bulldog spirit, if you will, which proved so important in terms of raising the morale and uniting the country uh, mm, to defeat mm. uh, uh, the enemies at that time, which is something which Donald Trump has singularly failed to do uh, at any point, it must be said, uh, during his presidency today. Mm. Indeed, yes, uh, uh, Churchill's, many of Churchill's speeches in that sense, Second World War-wise, were actually, the, the contrast was they were coming from a defeatist position, almost with a sort of last stand psychology, which, as you say, did then uh, invigorate the uh, the bulldog spirit, but but uh, but were very much in the moment, uh, 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 far from a sort of uh, everything will be all right um, as such. Uh, it behoves me to ask you, as as ever, because we find ourselves doing this every time there's a development in any way, shape, or form here, uh, the the impact at the this present moment and on the uh, the build up to the presidential election in November, the impact of Woodward's book of this uh, psychology surrounding the coronavirus. Trump saying he protected uh, everything and calmed calmed the nation as you were uh, as you analyzed there, and uh, and the the figures saying something very different. What impact, if any, besides uh, for Woodward himself in this moment, does this book have? Well, as you rightly uh, allude to, here we are again talking about another book uh, on this this president. Uh, for a president who clearly doesn't read very much, uh, he sure has generated an awful lot of uh, uh, of interest within the publication uh, world um, and, and made a lot of money for a select number of authors. Um, the, the challenge of this is this, however. Um, Whilst nobody is doubting Bob Woodward's uh, integrity or journalistic uh, uh, capacity uh, or even his penmanship here, the, the challenge is who is going to read this who has not yet made their mind up about Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the pros and the cons of Donald Trump were arguably baked in some four years ago. Uh, everybody make their minds up a long time. It, 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 it seems incredible, frankly, that anybody has yet to have their minds made up with regards to this president. Uh, is there anybody out there really who is going to suddenly think, oh, I think it's a new book on the president. I might read it. Oh, I didn't know this about Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> gee, I, I was going to vote for him, but uh, mm. now... Um, have, having visited have... my socially distanced library, I've changed my mind, yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, now let's let's be honest about it. It, it might well um, have an impact upon some of the elderly folks in the United States uh, who might feel that they were naturally inclined to vote Republican, come what may. Right. Uh, but perhaps because of the uh, the revelations about Donald Trump and his deliberate decision uh, to downplay this virus. Which, which will have undoubtedly led to, in their mind, deaths, potentially mm -hmm. of people that they know of, um, that that might well be a game changer. Um, 
who knows, frankly. Something else that's worth pointing out is this. Um, one of the great issues that we're facing at the moment is to do with uh, mail-in ballots. Mm. Um, will this uh, have an impact upon people who are getting their ballots now ahead of the election um, and, and will vote early? Will this book come out at the exact moment that people are starting to vote by mail? Will, mm. it, will it tip, tip that, uh, that, uh, that part of the electorate uh, which is planning ahead, which is pl planning to vote, um, or are those people going to vote Democrat anyway, quite frankly? Mm. Um, this is the great unknown. Um, and the, the extent to which uh, one book uh, will make a great difference is very difficult to tell. What might make a difference, of course, is the, is the publicity surrounding the book. Um, I, I dare say that far more Americans will, will be aware of the book and will see Woodward on television talking about his book and will be aware of Donald Trump attacking the book then we'll ever read the book. Uh, they will be aware of the headlines, the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the bullet points that come out mm. of this. Mm. And it will doubtless play for several weeks to come. Uh, Woodward has hardly been off the air, quite frankly, this last Indeed, week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the various networks are giving him, you know, hours of free air time. Uh, he was on Lawrence O'Donnell's show last night for an entire hour on MSNBC. Mm. Um, perhaps doesn't come as a great surprise to Trump's critics. Um, but it is a book which nobody can get away from. It is the main talking point here in, in Washington uh, and across the nation this week. Uh, and will no doubt play into the Sunday talk shows uh, this weekend. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're only a few days away, weeks away from the presidential debates and less than what, what sort of 55 odd days away from the election itself. So at this point, quite frankly, there are so many variables uh, that uh, Woodward could uh, very well have an impact upon uh, the, uh, the outcome of this election. Mm. Speaking of uh, influencing those uh, people potentially uh, on the on the fence, as it were, in this scenario, uh, Trump did a uh, an ABC town hall with uh, uh, George Stephanopoulos uh, this week uh, to a uh, very very socially distanced, uh, limited room of uh, of uh, undecided voters, as it were. Um, I was wondering your thoughts on that uh, process, that performance, and uh, and its impact or lack thereof in the election, please. So this obviously is a, a remarkable election season uh, where we're seeing two candidates who are basically trying to sort of find their own way through a socially distant path to the White House. Uh, and we're seeing both candidates uh, find their own unique way uh, in their own unique style. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, has been widely, um, it's been widely noted, uh, has his own direct access to Fox News pretty much whenever he wants to uh, through his connection with, with Sean Hannity in particular, uh, but also uh, uh, with Fox and Friends, their morning uh, show, which are very receptive to his uh, attempts to call in and to try to drive the narrative. Mm -hmm. So it's notable that rather than doing a, uh, a similar show on, on Fox News, which would have been the obvious location to do this, that Donald Trump chose to do it on ABC, one of the main networks here, uh, a network which is free to air. You don't need, you know, a subscription to see it. So it's a great way of getting access to um, a large swathe of the American uh, electorate. Uh, 
unfortunately for Donald Trump, the viewing figures for this show were not as one might have expected. Um, you could offer a, a tip of the hat to Donald Trump for daring to venture into what he would call mainstream media. <laughs> um, and let's be honest about it. Again, from a Republican point of view, let's try to be balanced here. Um, many people might not be aware that George Stephanopoulos, uh, before he became a major anchor on an ABC, uh, was Bill Clinton's uh, ridiculously young uh, communications director. Mm -hmm. uh, so young, in fact, that when he became communications director at the White House, uh, they gave him uh, non-prescription glasses just to make him look older. Um, wow. Uh, viewers of... Viewers of Friends from Did, the early 90s. Ah, uh, yes. Sir. Drop the towel. Yeah. <laughs> the one with George Stephanopoulos, uh, in which uh, he was uh, suggested that he'd moved across the street from uh, uh, Monica uh, and Friends, etc., etc., etc. He's also the individual who, by the way, was the inspiration for Sam Seaborn uh, on The West Wing and before that for Michael J. Fox's character on The American President. So this is someone who's got great cultural resonance but let's be honest about it, is, is a Democrat, a Democrat operative. Uh, and this is something which has been often leveled against ABC. Why on earth would you bring in someone who is so obviously associated with one particular party? Right. It would be a little bit, frankly, like bringing in uh, Alistair Campbell, um, Tony Blair's uh, famed uh, spin doctor uh, to work for, say, for example, ITV and expecting him to be totally um, bipartisan. Mm, um, mm. It's an easy criticism to say, well, he'd obviously be favoring uh, Labour, wouldn't he? Um, let's move on from that. Don't, uh, George, Stephanos, George Stephanopoulos did not cover himself in glory in this. Many people have suggested that he was far too soft on Donald Trump. He is not someone who is renowned for being a particularly hard-hitting journalist no. um, at all, quite frankly. Mm. He's been doing this job now for uh, far longer than he ever worked for Bill Clinton and has mm. really never established himself, I don't think, uh, as, uh, as the sort of uh, uh, journalist uh, of a generation that perhaps he thought he might be able to uh, when he moved to ABC. In fact, what you're seeing actually is, is a recognition that the hard-hitting questions came not from Stephanopoulos, but from members of the audience. Um, hmm. That's one thing. Uh, we've seen that in the past, of course. Um, back in 1992, uh, George H.W. Bush was undone by a series of questions in a town hall meeting uh, that mm. Bill Clinton just absolutely dominated. Here we are now in 2020, uh, and again, an American president is seen to be uh, struggling to answer questions directly from the American electorate. Um, CNN believed that he made at least 22 directly false statements during mm -hmm. that town hall on a variety of issues, uh, which should come as no surprise to anybody. Uh, no, this is no. the week when Donald Trump has been talking about his uh, plans for the forthcoming presidential debates and, and basically saying he has no plans to prepare at all, that he will go in basically cold. Uh, it doesn't want to worry about trying to remember a whole host of, uh, of uh, facts and figures from briefing books, uh, believing that, for example, when Mitt Romney took that approach in 2012, uh, that he was so uh, overwhelmed facts and figures uh, that he simply couldn't function. Well, whether that was actually true about Romney is debatable, quite frankly. I seem to remember he had a pretty darn good debate performance in the first debate against Obama. Yes, yeah, there was, yeah. Mm. It's certainly very true uh, that his approach will be one of bluster uh, and frankly 
not relying upon accurate facts and figures, uh, but uh, basically trying to out Blarney, uh, I think, uh, Joe Biden when those, when those uh, debates happen uh, in a few short weeks' time. As is uh, perhaps inevitable, I'm, uh, I'm uh, tempted into drawing parallels uh, between how Trump and Biden are acting this time compared to how Trump and Hillary acted four years ago. Uh, I'm interested on your take as to the, uh, the parallels that can be drawn in terms of similarities, uh, perhaps the extent to which uh, uh, Biden and Trump have learned things from four years ago that means they're approaching things differently now. And I think something that you and I have covered in the past, the significance of uh, third-party candidates in the mix, uh, very, very prevalent in the 2016 election, and, uh, and perhaps you could uh, uh, explore and uh, explain to us their significance or lack thereof in this one, please. Well, you think it would be an all too obvious thing to do, isn't it? The Democrats would look back and say, well, okay, what did we do wrong? There was an election in 2016 that was ours to lose, and by God, did we lose it. How did we do that? Well, the, the easy narrative is, well, it was because of Hillary, and Hillary wasn't a popular candidate. And if we just put someone like Joe Biden on the ticket, he would have won, and we wouldn't now be talking about the end of the first term of, uh, of Donald Trump, but the end of Joe Biden's first term and moving into a successful bid for re-election. Um, I think it's far too simplistic. Um, and it's also something which simply isn't being borne out because one of the, the understandable criticisms, quite frankly, of Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, in the final stages uh, was the extent to which it was believed to be resting on its laurels, uh, that this, what was known as the, uh, the blue firewall of states that were mm. a given, uh, that always vote Democrat, uh, could be basically uh, forgotten about, uh, and that mm. uh, Hillary should start moving into uncharted territory, uh, maybe states that her husband had won, for example, back in 1992, like Arizona, mm. uh, in an attempt to extend uh, her grip on the Electoral College, uh, and also to try and help out uh, candidates for the Senate in an attempt, therefore, to not only win Hillary Clinton the presidency, but also to uh, win the Democrats' control over the House and the Senate, mm. which, of course, mm. would allow a far greater leeway for President Hillary Clinton to get her legislative agenda through. Um, the problem with that, of course, is you better damn well make sure uh, that you have got your uh, those, those states firmed up before you start trying to uh, increase your lead. Uh, and of course, this was a mistake that it believed Hillary made some four years ago mm. by, it must be said, ignoring the very, very good advice uh, of Bill Clinton, who suggested that, quite frankly, they should be more worried about, dare I say, a series of states which included Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, which of course mm. proved to be uh, the uh, ultimate Achilles heel uh, in Bobby Mook's uh, campaign strategy to get his boss, Hillary Clinton, elected president. Um, the, the tragedy is now that whilst those states were viewed as all too uh, tempting and all too uh, obvious choices for Joe Biden, this sort of, uh, sort of folksy, blue-collar, uh, working-class-orientated politician to be aiming at, uh, the latest uh, news coming out is, is the belief that, frankly, he is not going to these places uh, for one reason or another, and we can look at, we can talk about coronavirus all you like, quite mm. frankly, but mm. he simply does not believe to be focusing upon these states sufficiently, uh, and has instead been uh, uh, believed to be focusing upon Arizona, again, almost making 
the verbatim mistake that it's believed Hillary made uh, some, some four years ago. Um, another mistake it's believed that was uh, made by Hillary Clinton uh, was with regard to the Hispanic vote. Uh, now, I wrote in my uh, biography of Hillary Clinton entitled Hillary Rising that I thought it might, might be opportune for her to choose a Hispanic candidate for vice president mm. in an attempt mm. to tap into that uh, vast growing uh, electorate here in the United States. Um, an all too obvious move for the Democratic Party to tap into. Well, here we are now some four years later on uh, and Joe Biden has not chosen a Hispanic candidate for the vice presidency. The Hispanic community is basically saying that they don't believe that they are being courted sufficiently by Joe Biden, believing uh, that they as a community are being left behind uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, we, it, we're not going to touch upon race relations here in this today, but it's worth noting that, you know, this isn't simply a white versus non-white debate in the United States. It is very nuanced. And, you know, on, um, in many cases, the Hispanic community is not um, supportive of the Black Lives Matter, as you might imagine, they might be as another minority group in the United States. And indeed, what you're right. seeing uh, is elements within the Hispanic community saying, well, we're not being courted by Joe Biden, we will vote for Donald Trump. That's the uh, uh, the demographic aspect there. Let's let's talk about the third party element in in terms of 2016. And and uh, uh, I see, for example, uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, investing money again this week in order to uh, influence uh, various aspects. If you could explore that for us, please. Yeah. So, you know, I dread to think how many uh, thousands of words have been written trying to explain. Why it is that Donald Trump prevailed in 2016? We've had, you know, offerings from everybody. I've tried to suggest in various talks about why that might be. Hillary Clinton, of course, surprise, surprise, uh, managed to find a way of getting another book deal out of this to try and explain what happened. Um, she lost. Uh, there's what happened. Um, now, why is that? Well, there are so many reasons about why she did lose and why Donald Trump prevailed. Uh, that frankly any one of them uh, could well have been um, influential. But certainly one of the key reasons that Donald Trump won last time uh, in, in an election victory which you know, many people thought was impossible. Uh, and indeed when you look at his path to victory, the needle he had to thread, uh, again on paper, even now appears impossible. How did he do that? How can it happen again? Mm. Well, one of the reasons it happened was because far too much attention in the media and in all analytics, quite frankly, uh, continues to focus upon 2016 as though it was a simple Democrat versus Republican race. And of course it was not. Just as in 2000, when you had a remarkable election victory, uh, in that case for George W. Bush, you had the presence of multiple candidates, third party candidates, if we can call them that. Mm. Uh, Jill Stein uh, running for the Green Party, for example, the presence of an independent vote uh, candidate, for example, again, helped split uh, the votes. And whilst um, in terms of the greater overall electoral vote, um, the numbers of people voting for them was 
basically insignificant mm. in a key number of states where the, those votes were close. Remembering that it is a winner-take-all process here in the United States on a state-by-state -state basis, the presence of the independence vote, of the Green Party vote in 2016, uh, as well as going back to 2016, again, the presence of people like Ralph Nader, people like uh, Pat Buchanan, made a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was the, the difference between uh, those votes uh, in places, again, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, that made a difference, arguably, between a probably quite healthy Hillary Clinton victory in those states and a very, very narrow election victory in those states for Donald Trump, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. I remind everybody won those three states by a combined total of less than 70,000 votes. That's less than would fit into Old Trafford, say, for example, on a normal Saturday afternoon mm, in a COVID-free mm. environment. So <laughs> third-party candidates made a hell of a difference in 2016, mm. and their lack of a presence, frankly, here in 2020, will have an impact upon the election. Now, Michael Bloomberg can spend as much money as he wants trying to support Joe Biden. Um, but the fact that there is not a third party running to potentially split the vote on one side or another, uh, either helping Biden or helping Trump, will make this a much uh, more difficult um, election, arguably, to try to forecast. Mm. Uh, because, of course, attempts to look back at 2016 will be rendered somewhat uh, uh, irrespective because of the lack of uh, third party candidates running in this election cycle. Indeed. One of the uh, uh, the most common questions for me for people looking for your uh, aforementioned silver lining in the scenario here in terms of a, uh, a Biden victory over Trump is that concern over the, uh, the definition and the uh, impact of the Electoral College on this result this time around. Obviously, uh, to, to a large extent, the, the, the nature of social media, the nature of Donald Trump's presidency has brought American politics uh, as far back as 2016, far more into the, uh, into the sort of uh, uh, public, uh, public mindset than it, that it might previously have been here in the UK. And, uh, and one of the things that causes great confusion, given the, the size of Hillary Clinton's popular vote win and otherwise, is the, uh, uh, the impact of the Electoral College in that situation. So I wondered uh, this evening whether we could uh, close out with, a, with a, uh, an infamous James Boy's summary of the uh, Electoral College and the extent to which it guarantees a, uh, another Trump victory this November or otherwise, please. Okay, so an attempt to explain the Electoral College. Um, the Electoral College is confusing to many people. Um, many people believe the United States, of course, is a democracy. Well, the definition of a democracy is um, basically ruled by the masses. Um, if that was the case, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton would have been president in 2016. Al Gore would have been president in 2000. In both of those elections, the Democratic candidate for president won a plurality of the votes cast across the nation. However, that is not how the United States decides ultimately who its chief executive officer will be. Indeed, uh, for all of us uh, who are looking to stay up late into the night on election night, uh, come early November, um, we are in many ways wasting our time. Um, not only um, 
quite frankly, is it possible uh, that the election will not be decided in terms of the vote on uh, the uh, election night here in the United States because of the, the presence of mail-in votes and the announcement this week, for example, that uh, various states uh, votes will be counted even after the election date, quite frankly, which is going to really infuriate Donald Trump and lead to more questions about um, the veracity of the vote. But the Electoral College does not meet to decide the election until later in the year. Um, now, how does the Electoral College work itself? There are 538 electors to the Electoral College. To win the presidency, you need an overriding majority of 270 votes in the Electoral College. As I've told students many, many times, this is about electoral math and 270 is the great number. How do we get to 270? Well, many people wonder, well, where are these figures? How does this come about? Let's break this down. Uh, rather than thinking about one an American election, I want to ask people to think about 50 independent, separate state-by-state -state elections, because that is how the presidency is ultimately decided. Each state has a differing number of electors which you will send to the electoral college. That number is actually very easy to calculate. Uh, it is based along these lines. Um, each state has initially two electors because each state has two senators in the United States Senate. Mm. However, in addition to that, each state will then have a number of electors depending upon how many members it sends to the House of Representatives. And that number is dependent upon population. So very, very small states with a very small population uh, will only have one in extra delicate. Therefore, the number of the, the minimum number of electors from any one state will be three. Right. Up to a maximum, which California has, for example. California is the most populous state in the nation, not the largest, of course, geographically. Uh, that is uh, actually uh, Alaska. Uh, but again, Alaska is a classic example. It's a large state geographically, but a uh, relatively minor state in terms of population. And indeed, Alaska only has three electors to the Electoral College because of the population which I've just explained. Mm. California currently has 55 delegates to the Electoral College because it has 53 um, members of the House of Representatives and a further two senators, hence 55. Mm. So you need 270 Electoral College uh, votes to win the presidency. Each state is a winner-take-all basis come the election of the president. So. If you factor in uh, states like California with 55 electoral college votes, Texas, 38 electoral college votes, Florida, 29, New York State, 29, you can start to see, I think, how it's possible to win the presidency uh, with a very small number of states indeed. Um, on the other hand, you could also take approach, which is if you're a Republican, you're probably going to need to win a whole host of states in the Midwest, where it must be said you have very large states, but with very few people living there. Mm. Indeed, there is an entire swathe of states across uh, the Midwest, if you will, where you know there are a handful of states with only three, four, five electoral college 
delegates there. So um, it, it is fair to say, I think, that Republicans need to win more, less densely populated states to win the presidency mm. than the Democrats do in terms of looking how it is that various states vote at this point. Um, this, of course, is why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. Yes, she won California with 55 electoral college votes uh, and won that state by some 2 million votes, it's believed. But she would have been far better off um, moving some of those 2 million votes across the border to a variety of states, including Arizona, uh, for example, uh, where she would have picked up um, a whole host of other uh, electoral college votes which didn't go her way, uh, but went to uh, Donald Trump instead. Mm. So it is a straightforward race to a delegate count. Um, each state has its own uh, numbers, uh, and you see each party, Democrats and Republican, focusing very heavily upon those states that they believe are in their back pocket uh, and trying to push on into uh, swing states in which the elections uh, are decided. Uh, and we saw four years ago, for example, how uh, Donald Trump managed to do that by taking what was seen to be pretty solidly blue states uh, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and flipping them. Uh, if any one of those states had gone for Hillary Clinton, it would have prevented Donald Trump from becoming president. 